Uh, I think I'm just on a little bit of a movie kick because last week I talked about the uh, movie Apollo 13, and this week I want to begin with a, a movie uh, that was in the 2000s, The Passion of the Christ. As you might recall, that, that movie generated a great deal of interest, and it also generated some controversy. It was pretty brutal. Uh, but the movie did correctly and unflinchingly depict how capital punishment took place in Judea during the time of the Roman Empire, the time where uh, Jesus and, and the Jewish people lived under Roman occupation. Crucifixions included vicious floggings beforehand, and then the convicted criminals were, were paraded through the streets as the crowds shouted and jeered at them on their way to where they would ultimately uh, be killed. The condemned would carry the crossbeam on their back, uh, their humanity degraded, and, and their hope diminished with every step that they took. And then at that place of final execution, the, the criminals were then stripped and either bound or nailed to the cross and elevated on that cross. Sometimes I don't think we know that under Roman rule, crosses literally littered the Judean countryside. Around the time that Jesus was three or four years old, two thousand Galilean insurrectionists were crucified in a single day. Two thousand. As one scholar says, the Romans put up crosses like billboards to advertise uh, Caesar's supremacy and the fate of anyone who dared to challenge the empire. Now, because crucifixion actually damaged no vital organs, death could come excruciatingly slowly, sometimes after several agonizing days. It is graphic uh, to depict this. It's not more graphic than the Passion of the Christ, but it is graphic, but it is important to know that this is the brutal context in which uh, uh, about what Jesus talks about in our reading this morning when he says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The way I would translate that is, if anyone wants to follow me, let them be prepared for humiliation and public execution. That doesn't sound very inviting, does it? Again, because crucifixions were rampant, Jesus and his followers were often walking underneath crucifixes on which bodies were hung. And so those who heard Jesus' words would have immediately understood the gravity of what Jesus was talking about in a way I don't think we do. Here in chapter 8, then again in Mark 9, verses 30 through 37, and then again in Mark 10, 
32 through 45, Jesus forecasts his own brutal death. And all three times, Jesus' followers fail to grasp how Jesus' messianic ministry could end up on a cross. I, I like sometimes to call them the disciples. As you heard at the beginning of our reading in Mark 8, 27, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and they offer so, uh, all, a few answers, but to this point, Mark has narrated uh, Jesus' travels through Galilee. And, and how he's healed uh, the, the disturbed and the diseased and, and the disabled. He's told parables and he's fed thousands. He's walked on water and he's argued with religious leaders. He's even bridged and reached out to, to non-Jews, Gentiles, and ministered to them. So when Jesus uh, then says... Well, who do you say that I am? Peter blurts out, you are the Messiah. That is the model confession of faith, both then and now. But it has a disturbing sequel as we continue. Because Jesus immediately begins to teach his followers that, that he will be rejected, that he will suffer and be killed. And worse... Jesus says that his followers must also be prepared for the same, to lose themselves for the sake of the gospel. So right there in the middle of Mark, Jesus is clarifying the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him. Uh, in his letter uh, to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, the Apostle Paul writes that the crucified Christ is, quote, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And he is not exaggerating because nothing in the Old Testament suggests that God's anointed could face such a, such a fate. Indeed, in the Old Testament, a, a person who is hung on a tree is considered cursed by God, not, not God's chosen. So then uh, Peter's response uh, when Jesus talks about his suffering indicates how the disciples don't really hear what Jesus is teaching right here as really good news. Is it any wonder then that Peter sort of walks up to Jesus and puts his arm around him, says, you know, come over here, and, and, and begins to set Jesus straight about what it means to be the disciple, uh, the, the Messiah? Peter says, I'm the one that just told you that you're the Messiah, and we all know that a Messiah ends up with a crown, not a cross. Like that adversary that tempted Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, Peter is tempting uh, Jesus to take a different route than that suffering one. 
And that's just from the beginning. Same thing with Satan. He, He tempts Jesus to take an alternate path in his messiahship that includes power and glory and triumph. But Jesus tells Peter that to reject suffering is to reject God's priorities in favor of human priorities. So Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, you are not thinking as God thinks. You are thinking as human think. And how about us? Does our definition or understanding of Jesus resemble Peter's way of thinking? Or does it resemble what Jesus says in this passage? The Protestant reformer Martin Luther contrasted two different ways of thinking about God. One was called the theology of glory, and the other was called the theology of the cross. The the theology of glory affirms and confirms what people actually want God to do. We want God to come back and get even with everybody we don't like. The theology of, of, of the cross contradicts everything that people imagine God to be. As one theologian says, a theology of glory prefers accomplishment to suffering. Glory to the cross. Wisdom to folly and thus evil to good. A theology of the cross knows God only in Christ and in him crucified. So in short, the ways we think God ought to be are not the way God actually is. In contemporary Christianity, a theology of glory sort of is a believe and receive theology, right? Prosperity, you know, if you do this for God, God has to bless you. Isn't that an interesting way that we figure out how we can control God? Um. I recently read, uh, this is happening really frequently um, in some churches, as the minister is quoting directly from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' actual words, in the Sermon on the Mount, and after the sermon, somebody will come up and say, why are you preaching woke? And and when... (laughs) When the minister says, uh, these are the words of Jesus, the person will respond often, well, that's just not practical. The words of Jesus were never practical. That's why Peter rebukes Jesus. And yet, it is the way. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish... uh, Philosopher noted that the theology of glory is the faith of one who who admires but does not follow Jesus. Kierkegaard says, an admirer is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ. But he renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express 
that which he supposedly admires. The follower, on the other hand, aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. And then, even though he lives among other Christians, the follower incurs the same peril as when it was a capital offense to follow Jesus. Now, I realize Soren Kierkegaard, you know, was gender biased, right? He says he, I believe this is true of she as well. But I'm going to quote from a female here. Uh, In a classic of spiritual uh, literature, Simone Veal's uh, book, Waiting for God, she writes this. If it cannot be given me to deserve one day to share the cross of Christ, at least may I share the cross of the good thief. Of all the beings other than Christ, of whom the gospel tells us, the good thief is by far the one I most envy. To have been at the sight of Christ, And in the same state during his crucifixion seems to be a far more enviable privilege than to be at the right hand in his glory. There's somebody who gets what it means to follow Christ. So how do we do this? How do we kind of exchange our ways of thinking and begin to turn away from a theology of glory And walk instead in the way of the cross. Well, any small step is a good one. But I think our first step is just the admission about how we resist trying to think like God. How we resist actually listening to Jesus and learning the way of the cross. Uh, Lent is upon us, and we know that Pastor Liz's class is full But a few years ago, I read this wonderful book by Philip Yancey called Soul Survivor, How My Faith Survived the Church. Not a great title. Philip Yancey was Billy Graham's favorite author. And uh, he wrote this book, and he talks about 13 individuals whose faith, whose way of following Jesus so impressed him that there was no way that he could turn away from faith. And so uh, if you don't have a discipline for the 40-day season of Lent, I just recommend that maybe you uh, purchase and and read this book during Lent. Uh, the, the, The people in it are, most of them will probably be people you've never heard of, and uh, they have lived remarkable lives of faith that will be transformative to your understanding. So I, I do encourage you to do that. But friends, as we enter the season of Lent, let us at least begin with a willingness to challenge our ways of thinking and let Jesus transform our understanding of the way God works in the world. Amen.